Never Let Me Go, more like Never Let Laura Go to Taco Bell, She Gets Gassy. Welcome to Films Lit. Hey! <laughs> I didn't know that's how we were starting. My name is Danny. I am the film expert. My name is Laura Sheher, and I'm the literature expert. And this is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. This is a full spoilers podcast. So full spoilers for both the book and the movie. Today we're covering Never Let Me Go, written by Kazuo Ishiguro, adapted by Mark Romanek in 2010, written by our boy Alex Garland. Ever heard of him? Yeah, writer, director of Ex Machina. He also wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later, wrote the screenplay for Sunshine, the underrated Danny Boyle film. Oh yeah, also adapted and directed Annihilation, mm. which we covered on the podcast back in season one. Wow, that was... Forever ago. That was like 65 episodes that ago. That was early pandemic. That yeah. was pre-vax. That was... Yeah, all that stuff. Lockdown era. We had no idea what was... We thought the world was going to turn out like Annihilation. <laughs> we thought it was just going to completely take over. And who says it won't? That's true. Uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, before we get into the meat of the episode, we have some housekeeping to do. Mm-hmm. Any announcements? I don't have an announcement so much as another shout out to Village Wells Books and Coffee, which is where we purchased this book. Uh, it's where we also purchased Rum Punch, which is what we covered two weeks ago. So Yeah, if you're in the greater Los Angeles area, please check them out if you're buying any physical books. Now... We have a question. Yeah. This so, is, the first time, is this the first time we've yeah, done this? Yes, it's the first time we're doing So last episode, we posed a question to our listeners. It says, what is your favorite Shakespeare adaptation? Uh, because we were covering two weeks ago, we covered the tragedy of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. So, And we got uh, a few answers. So, Yay! Yeah. Both uh, Melissa Hoskins, a uh, college buddy, and then also another college buddy who was uh, four years ahead of me, so we never were, we never attended BU at the same time. She's an alum of the sketch comedy group I was in, mm-hmm. Heather Potts. Um, we all had nicknames. Her nickname was Hollywood, so mm-hmm. I know her as Hollywood. But both Melissa and Heather slash Hollywood, they said 10 Things I Hate About You, which mm. I love that film. I was thinking about that movie that today because I was thinking of Heath Ledger. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to watch movies with him now because I just get sad. <laughs> right. I know, exactly. Um, I went to see that movie for the first time in 2016. It was playing at Films on the Green in LA, mm-hmm. and I was not looking forward to it at all. I was dragged to it, but little did I know, it's actually a genuinely funny, delightful high school movie that just happens to be based on, what, Taming the Shrew, right? Or what is it? I think so. Something like that. Um, So yeah, we got two of those answers. And then our boy, Benny Marcus, also from BU, he answered, he said, Succession, the show on HBO, is kind of like King Lear. King Lear, yeah. Yeah. And I love King Lear. It's It's one of my favorite Shakespeare works next to Othello. My favorite Shakespeare adaptation is based on King Lear, it's Ran, the international film I'm Ran. Not, I'm not familiar. Um, we haven't watched Succession yet, but speaking of our boy, our boy Nicholas Bertel composed the score. So I know we're yes. going to love it. <laughs> yeah. And then the director of Ran was Kurosawa. So well-known classic yeah. director, one of the best ever at the game. So check out Ran if you haven't already. So next week, we're going to answer the question, what is your favorite Tarantino film and why? So please send us your answers on our Instagram, and we'll talk about that next episode. Excuse me. I didn't give my favorite Shakespeare adaptation. Oh, go ahead. I wasn't asked. Go ahead. Thank you for the (laughs) mic. One of my favorite adaptations, because it's so creative, is Scotland, PA which we talked a little bit about during our Macbeth episode. But it's really fun. Yeah, I still need to check that out. It's... I hard to find. I'm looking around. It's not oh, really it? streaming anywhere. I guess I could probably text Dr. Flory and ask him to send us the DVD. I think that's probably how we watched it. Yeah, I mean, we could rent it, but... Where's the nearest Blockbuster? Uh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely not at Redbox, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Am I right? Ladies. I <laughs> um, yeah, so... That's that's the housekeeping, all the housekeeping we have. Yeah, before we get into it, please check out our Instagram 
at Film is Lit Pod, and also check out my reviews on Letterboxd. My handle is at Danny G Reviews. Okay, let's get into it. Never let me go. Laura, give us some background on your journey with the story. Well, I don't have a lot of background, but unfortunately, the reason we're covering this is because Allison, my best friend, wanted to do it with us. And because she's so busy, unfortunately, she cannot join us today, which is a huge bummer. But she's been telling me to read this for a while, and I just never got around to it. But funny story, when I was purchasing this book at Village Wells, the cashier was like, oh man, like get ready to cry. Like buckle up. This book is going to destroy you. And I was like, oh, I, (laughs) you know. So I kind of went in with really high expectations and I'm interested to get into a conversation about this because it did not emotionally destroy me. So I'm, I'm interested to have a conversation about it. Yeah. That's my journey. You're nervous because something a friend recommended to you did not uh land i guess but and the other thing too i i was looking up the movie before we watched it i was very shocked at the star-studded cast and not only is it star-studded it also includes some of my favorite actors like domal gleason and the actor who plays his sister in a little movie i like to call about time my favorite yeah (laughs) of all time she has a brief role yeah in the never let me go i don't even know if i'd call it a cameo but yeah but yeah i was i was surprised by the cast um and i think man if if the best parts of the book were in the movie i think it would have been great and if the best parts of the movie were in the book i think it would have been great but unfortunately i think some things missed in both pieces and that's why it didn't completely land for me Mm-hmm. But I don't. I didn't hate it at all. I just think that oh, there there were a couple misses that didn't quite that resulted in a missed landing for me. Mm-hmm. So that's my summary. How about you? Yeah, I've known about the novel for a while because my mom read it when it came out. When did uh, Ishiguro publish it? Two thousand five. Two thousand five. So I remember her telling me about the premise, and I was certainly intrigued. Sci-fi is my favorite genre. Uh-huh. When people ask me that that's my go-to answer but my second backup answer to that is i love genre fluid films Definitely. um you know films that showcase the full breadth of humanity and wield the audience's attention like a roller coaster between the different genres so you can't really pinpoint what it is i love mm-hmm. it like parasite for instance yeah. that is a film that is completely genre fluid. You can't pinpoint one certain thing it's going for because it's wild. It's all over the place. So this story is definitely like that. It's sci-fi adjacent, but it's much more about these lofty themes about the value of human life and if souls can be quantified or what the meaning of art and how mm-hmm. art is valuable. And I- I've been intrigued for a while. I just love clone stories to begin with. I'm a big clone head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you have clones in your stories, I'm usually all for it. But I didn't watch the movie until yesterday for this podcast, which is even weirder because I'm a huge Alex Garland fan, yeah. obviously. If he has a hand in a project, you can pretty much guarantee it's sci-fi adjacent yes. at least. Definitely. And I've been a huge fan of his work since I started getting into film. Um, I even like The Beach, which is another... He wrote the book for The Beach, and then that was his first screenplay. Mm -hmm. And that movie was a big flop, and it has a low critical score. But I actually kind of like it. It's weird, certainly, but I like it. So knew about both the book and the movie, and I knew it was about clones because my mom had told me that. She didn't reveal anything else about it, but I went in knowing that it was about clones who donate their organs, listened to the book last month, and then watched the movie for the first time yesterday. And I think they're both solid. Um, I've mentioned this before in the pod. I'm a big plot guy, Mm. and this movie and story is not about the plot. It's about the characters with the sci-fi backdrop. I would have loved for it to delve deeper into the world, Mm. but I would argue also that Ishiguro is not interested in that at all. It's about the themes of of life and the value of life and what it means to live. So it's kind of appropriate that this doesn't have a big 
through line of plot, and it's more about their lives of these three people, uh, notably Kathy, our, the main character and narrator. But even though I, I really like it and appreciate what it's going for, it just misses the mark of a recommendation, really, uh, because it's just not... It's not that it's not for me, it's just it's missing that one element that would really propel it into something greater than. I, I'm totally blown away by its themes, and it mm-hmm. it's very introspective and made me think of the point of life. It has this very lofty outlook on the human existence. Uh, it's also very, extremely sad, obviously. But, well, oh yeah. There's but yeah, I, it's, it's just missing the mark for me. It's well, still still a piece of art, though. Well, it's funny, we watched Not Only Never Let Me Go during the afternoon, we also watched The Rescue, which is the documentary about uh, a young soccer team in Thailand surviving the, you know, crazy, like basically 20-day ordeal of yeah, life he- and death. And so yesterday we were absolutely contemplating mortality. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yesterday was a little intense. I actually lost a lot of sleep last night because I was yeah. stressing about this these themes they're i was wrestling with them both yeah both this story and the rescue really highlight the fragility of life how the margin between being alive and being dead is so thin that it's barely even there yeah and my whenever this theme comes up because i have so much general anxiety my line to danny is i don't like to think about that yes we even come close to these themes i just shut it down because yes we have cbd gummies for that yes Um. we do and cbg gummies (laughs) yeah so we're exploring yeah um it's not that i'm disappointed it's just I'm so used to being blown away by everything Alex Garland has touched. Even Dread, which is the Carl Urban action movie from 2012. Honestly, that's still amazing. So, yeah, I, this is earlier on in his career. So I, he hasn't fully broken out as the master that he is today. And I can't wait for his next directorial project. Yeah. Uh, that trailer just uh, dropped. Men. Men. Yeah, starring... With Jesse Buckley, Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated. Oh, before we get... Okay, <laughs> we're going to get into the analysis. Before we get in into that, though, Oscar noms. We're recording this a week after the noms dropped. I'm, for the most part, excited about this year's crop of nominees. You have a deaf actor nominated, the second ever. You have a female cinematographer she might win. That'll be the first cinematographer um, who's female to win. Uh, Power of the Dog. We love that movie. Oh my gosh. We love that movie. Loved Power of the Dog. Yeah. Um, that had 12 nominations. Amazing. Dune, 10 nominations. But Except. The, but Best Director. It's, it's absolutely insane and unprecedented to nominate a film 10 times in, in Best Picture and Screenplay and Editing. Uh, to not recognize the director. I think one of the best reactions to this is a meme that Danny found online that says, who directed Dune? The sand? Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's absurd. And I wouldn't change the other four people who are nominated. So Steven Spielberg for West Side Story, yes. Rizuzuki Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. We haven't seen that movie. Oh, this is another thing I want to mention. So if you listen to our Tragedy of Macbeth episode, which was recorded before the Oscar noms dropped, Laura said that because there are 10 films allowed to be nominated this year, that something like Drive My Car will be nominated. And she said that it gave me the confidence to put to predict that it would get nominated. It did. I got a lot of points on my online forum where I post my uh, <laughs> uh, predictions. So got to credit Laura for that. So... Hamaguchi is nominated. Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Obviously, she's going to win. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and I, she's and, the first female director to be nominated twice. It's, yes. no, it's rare for a female director to be nominated at all. Right. But this is her second nomination. So congratulations to that Kiwi. Yes. <laughs> um, and then Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. Oh, and I get to see him tomorrow night. I yeah. get to see a Q&A after I see Licorice Pizza with my dad. We're going on a little... Valentine's Day date. Yeah. <laughs> LA living. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the 
Oh, City so of Sunshine, excited. baby. Yeah, so, <laughs> but the fifth nominee, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Listen, Kenneth Branagh is a talent. He's been nominated in seven categories in his life. Uh, and he's been in a few Shakespeare adaptations. Right. He is a talent. But Belfast, I haven't seen Belfast. We haven't yet. By though. all accounts, it's a fine movie. Put in Denis instead. Mm-hmm. Just put in Denis. Dune got 10 nominations. Put in Denis. Let's be mature about this and just put in Denis. So that's all I'll say. I'm super upset about oh, that. We spun out a little bit. Yeah. All right. Never let me go. So let's get into the analysis. Laura, can you do a quick synopsis of the story? Yeah, I can. It revolves around three characters, Kathy... Ruth, and Tommy, and they are introduced very early on as, the the word clone never is actually introduced in the book. Mm -hmm. They are considered donors. And so this whole book, I think, thrives around euphemisms. And unfortunately, that, that is a failing of the book to me as well. I, but that's more of analysis. So basically... This actually, when I was doing research for this episode, I saw it defined as a sort of building's roman, which we've talked about in the past, but I'll define it again. It's a novel dealing with one person's formative years or spiritual education. And I actually hadn't even thought about it in that way because it's so meandering, but that's exactly what it is. It's, it's sort of Kathy's journey coming to terms with the purpose of her life and the people around her. Mm -hmm. So, and that's it. That's really it. Um, Not that that's, it's not a simple journey (laughs) at all, but there is not a lot of plot. And I think one of the things that I really struggled with was that it, it kind of, it made me think of the joke in Arrested Development when Buster says that his mother gets off by being withholding. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was this entire book. Mm -hmm. Everything was withheld. And it was like every time Kathy would come to the beginning of a story, she would then back up by like a couple years and sort of tell you the context of why she was thinking of that story. Mm -hmm. And that was so frustrating to me because I just like, I wasn't getting the point Mm-hmm. It's like the point of the whole thing was just not said. And maybe in a meta way that was supposed to put you in the position of the children because everything is withheld from them until they're old enough to start making their donations, which I don't know if I explicitly said this, but organ donations yes. is what they're sort of farmed out for. But I just found that that was a really anticlimactic way to present the story and it, I found that I just lost interest. As soon as she was about to say something important, she would just pull back. And I was like, ah. Well, that's a big part of the structure, you're right, of the novel. But that's a big risk that Ishiguro takes is right. that this is not a novel that builds up to a big reveal. You know, mm-hmm. just the opposite. We're slowly revealed these little things periodically. And then it ends as it started with them Mm -hmm. with two dying and then one about to start her journey yeah so yeah the overall plot as you're saying follows these characters who start out in this boarding school Hailsham and we realize that yes it's a a battery farm they're they're being farmed they're being raised to one day give away their organs one by one and it's never yeah stated what specific organs they give away Mm -hmm. it could be an eye it could be like a lung a kidney liver right yeah but anything is but yeah it's it's implied that by the fourth donation it it is a vital organ so if you remove your liver then or heart yeah heart or spleen anything any vital thing if you remove you die so the fourth one is usually that or even by the fourth one your other organs have now been harvested to the point where you can't like if you've already donated one kidney and they need another and that's your second donation, you don't have a kidney left. Right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. So it follows them in Hailsham up to the age of 18 where they are transported to cottages. So it's basically another 
not facility, but another location outside of normal society for them to live. And then once they graduate from there, then they either become donors, or if you're not a donor immediately, you become a carer. So just caring for someone who's Who donating, donating yeah. has become a profession for these clones, for mm-hmm. the for the students of Hailsham. But Hailsham, you come to realize, is one of the nice clone factories, if you will. You slowly learn that they're the only place that's treating these kids and teenagers with like actual humans. Mm-hmm. The conditions are really worse I mean, other places. And that was a bit of world building in both the book and the movie that I really appreciated. Yeah, that was a reveal that I thought was really interesting. And I think that it was so interesting that I wanted more development. And unfortunately, it kind of let me down in that way. And it's also a really key difference between the book and the movie. Because in the book, it's revealed that Hailsham was sort of a pilot program that there were some people that ran Hailsham, for example, Miss Emily who and Madame Jean-Claude, who saw that these clones, this sort of cloning program that was, I don't know, discovered or kick-started in 1952, was not treating the children like they had souls, you know? Yeah. And so their goal with this pilot program was to give them what would be a normal life and to sort of push them to create art so that they could take the art on exhibition and convince the rest of the world that these children are worth treating as humans. Mm -hmm. However, in the movie, it's completely different. At the very end, we find out that Miss Emily and a lot of the other people, they were using Hailsham as a pilot program to prove to themselves that the children had souls. Right. And... See, that's where I thought the book was so much more interesting. Like, there were some people who already understood that there was an ethical problem with treating, you know, basically humans Mm -hmm. like they were... Non-human. Manufacturing plants for organs. Like farm animals. Yeah, like farm animals. Yeah. And and, And basically, by the end, we find out that they've failed. Hailsham shut down because they were not able to convince enough people to continue donating and paying attention to their cause because what people wanted it's it's really similar to like first world countries completely shutting out the reality of third world countries that manufacture things like clothing in really terrible conditions but like first world country citizens have the luxury of not thinking about that. So that's basically where they failed. They failed to get donors to, like, help them treat these children like humans. Mm-hmm. I found that the the movie, by writing out that complexity, lost a lot of heart. Because how could you look at these children that we've spent a whole movie with, and ostensibly people like Miss Emily and Madame Jean-Claude have spent these children's 18 years of their lives with them and they're still not convinced that they're humans like that to me was just kind of a a flaw of the movie it certainly works in the book what you're saying i think it also works in the movie because it's a little bit more ominous because what miss emily is saying is that they value the work that they're doing at hailsham whether their students have souls or not they view them as living creatures, so they, they view life as important enough to treat them with respect, unlike the other facilities, but they're still not convinced that the clones are people... Um, Is it, like, unethical that, that they have, to... Not, not ethical. They aren't, in a more kind of metaphysical sense, they're not convinced that they're quote-unquote real people. And that's a bigger message of the movie is what does it mean to have a soul? And I think what Ishiguro and Alex Garland with his screenplay are saying is that, well, clearly with Kathy and Tommy bringing together their artwork and showing up at the doorstep of Miss Emily and Claude, like that in itself is proof of a soul. Mm that the act of wanting to live to extend your life, the act of valuing your art, of having nostalgia for your art, um, knowing that art is important and can speak to bigger themes, like that is proof in itself of a soul. 
Mm-hmm. So where Miss Emily is misguided in the movie is that her values don't align with the metaphysical overall view of what a human soul is, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I guess maybe where that fails for me is I'm I'm more interested in the idea that you have to prove to the rest of the world. Like, I guess for such a short book... I'm more interested in digging into the idea that they already knew that they had souls. I think that's a good place to start because then that puts Emily and Jean-Claude in a position of being a patient advocate. But I feel like that leaves me with less questions as a foundation for having that conversation. And I felt like this book left me with so many questions that it's like less to wade through. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Sense? It does. Where I think the movie is an improvement is that I think that ending speech by Miss Emily in the book is just a huge yeah. exposition yes. dump. Yes, yes. I completely agree with where that. Where that goes on for way too long. I, I do appreciate it, and I love the world building of that they're, they're advocates uh, for the donors, for the students. It goes on for way too long, yeah. and perhaps Garland maybe cuts it too short. But mm-hmm. even though I like the mic drop of saying, like, we didn't we didn't save your art to show your souls. We saved your art to see if you had souls at all. I mean, that is, that's haunting and mm-hmm. even sadder. So I think it does cut some of the themes away, but at the same time, it adds a little bit more. I, I, I see your point, though. So this does raise another interesting question, because another problem, unfortunately, that I had was that this whole idea of Madame's gallery is a big deal in the book. Like, from age zero, the children at Hailsham are encouraged to create art that is then chosen to be displayed, or what basically they're told that it's going to be displayed in Madame's gallery, but they don't know what that means, and they don't know why it's so important. And, like, every single class that the children attend is to better their art. Now, (laughs) as much as I love art, I'm a very, I feel that I'm a very artistic person. I also don't understand why, I guess in the book it wasn't developed enough for me to understand why the artistic side of things were pushed. Why weren't they pushing every single individual child to discover what their skill was and then that would then be taken on exhibition to prove that each other, that they all had souls. Because by pushing the art side, that's not actually going to reveal people's best selves. And case in point, Tommy is not an artist and he does not begin developing art until he figures out what he thinks is sort of the system. Mm-hmm. And then he starts creating art. Now, if their goal was to humanize these children... The idea behind humanization is to recognize and respect people's individuality, right? Right. So by imposing this artistic standard on every single child, you're automatically going to leave some children to fail, Mm -hmm. right? So why not develop each child's skill individually? That to me feels like an oversight. Well, I guess it's hard to exhibit that to the public, um, in but, the book. But singing? You know? Are they, well, are, like, I, I understand they do, they talk about the difference between poetry and visual art, mm-hmm. but there's no conversation about, like, like a sports skill or a singing skill or, and they, they literally tell, Miss Lucy, who's another teacher, tells the students they'll never be actors. Yeah. So, like, they, I, I'm just looking for a little bit, like, of a different they didn't even say, like, writing stories. It was it was only poetry or visual, visual art. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I'm actually on your side on this. I, I completely agree. Of It seems very narrow to just push them with uh, that form of art. My only rebuttal is that I think there are hints in both the novel and the movie that the general public is so uncomfortable with seeing the clones that the only way they can take in and be sympathetic towards them is to see art. It's like they're seeing them, but they're not. Mm-hmm. They're like seeing an art piece and not seeing them. So if you show yeah. them being good at sports or show them singing, 
they'll either be too traumatic or too sad or too uncomfortable for people. Now, I think I agree with you that while reading it, I guess subconsciously I did have that of like, okay, so just art? Like what about, why aren't we getting any insight into math classes Mm -hmm. or science? Mm -hmm. Because the message is clear is that whether these are clones or real people, the value of life for everyone is the same. Everyone yeah, yeah. everyone is a person. Yeah. <laughs> so Everyone every- has the right to be treated like a human. Right. So yeah. th- that message is very clear and Ishiguro is open about it. it. It's obvious what it is and purposefully obvious. But I do have that, that thought. I did have that thought uh, rather of... Well, there are the other classes here. Like, is mm-hmm. it just in art school? So I did think that. I think that's a fair criticism. My favorite part of the movie, or I think the most haunting part of the movie, is when they have the big, what is it, the bumper sale? The bumper, you know, when the, they bring all the stuff. It's called the sale. Yeah, when they have yeah. the big sale and those two... Bumper, they call it a bumper crop. But bumper it's because, crop, But it's that's because it. the stuff that they have is a bumper crop. Yes, yeah. exactly. But it's not, which is the sad part. I don't it, know if that's yeah. what you're getting at, but... Well, that that is what I'm getting at, but what I'm getting at more specifically is in the movie, we get to see the mm-hmm. delivery of it. Yeah. And it's these two old men who, when they get out of the car and they look at each other... And they're clearly sad. They're clearly uncomfortable. They know that this is a chore and a, like a psychological chore. Mm-hmm. And they give, they give this look to each other. It's heartbreaking that we're giving toys to broken toys yeah. to kids who will die yeah. one day. Like guaranteed this is their path. Right. And then the kids come and they're like, is this the bumper crop? Is this the bumper crop? And he's just like, yes, sweetie. Like all the kids are excited, but these two old men... They've been doing this their whole lives. It's wearing them down. They walk in solemnly with these boxes, and that's pretty mm-hmm. haunting. So I think that speaks to why art is the only way to is the only way for people in this society, in this kind of new age dystopian uh, society, to really look into the the personalities and souls of these kids mm-hmm. because. Coming face to face with them is too much sure. emotionally. No, I think like, yeah, point well taken. Point very well taken. I just don't understand why there wasn't a scene of like, you know, they took a kid out and it was, it didn't go well. Yeah. Right? I just feel like that would show us why it would be forced on them so singularly. Yeah. Um. Because, again, without a scene like that, it makes you kind of wonder, like, well, does that mean they're just, you know, some of these kids are going to be left behind? And Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just just leaves some open questions. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to talk about is the tragedy of that search for each child's quote-unquote possible. Mm Mm-hmm. That is another really sad part that I think is really well discussed in the book. And it makes you feel so terrible for the clones because they do know that something's going on. Yes. Right? They know that they've been separated from society. And as they start piecing information together, they realize that they are clones. But then the sort of next logical step is to ask, well, who's clone? Who am I from? And that's, that's what they called the possible yeah now what's really sad is that what they come to i don't know if it's necessarily a discovery or if it's just sort of a theory or something they've always known but don't talk about exactly is that they're from quote unquote like the gutter which is the the language used in the book in the movie um ruth uses that word which is really sad because basically what they're saying is like you know they wouldn't model us off of successful people they would model us after people like, you know, prostitutes and... Drug addicts. Drug addicts and, you know... Drunks. Right. Yeah. Alcohol addict... People who have struggled with alcohol addiction. So that's really sad. And, and well, I mean, full disclosure, addiction is a, is a health issue. Uh-huh. But the point that's really sad is, like, they find some... There's a scene where Kathy finds some porn magazines in the garbage and she starts searching through to see if she can, like, find a clone, someone that looks like her, to, like, prove that she's a clone of someone who's of that ilk. 
Mm -hmm. So that's really sad. Um, However, another question that was raised when I was reading that was why... So basically, like, if these children are clones that are meant to donate their organs, does that mean that, like, only rich people could afford that kind of service? And if so, then why would a rich person... I I don't know. I'm just following my logic here. Why would a rich person be comfortable taking the liver of someone who has a history of addiction? Well, the original had the history, but it's like the clones are raised in an environment where they're, even though they're based on someone like that, their organs are as pure as you can get. Well, right. But so, but so that, that introduces the whole idea that like people who aren't as rich as someone, they could not, they couldn't afford a, sure a, an organ transplant, right? Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting conversation to have about like the stratification of who can afford Mm -hmm. to have something like this but it wasn't quite clear to me if the clone knew about this like is this a service that is offered through a hospital so let's say you know we're a couple we have a child and then at the hospital it's a conversation a doctor comes in and says like hey if you can afford if you can give us a million dollars we will clone your child Mm-hmm. And that child, if there's any issues, has this person as a backup? Or is it a program through the hospitals that they just have clones? Do they tell the person that they clone? Mm-hmm. Is this getting too technical? Because I no. there were just so many questions that I had about... But then the thing... Again, this, this is another question. Why are these seemingly healthy you know, 18 to 30-year-olds having organs harvested, if they're clones of people, all of these people are getting sick when they're 30 or 23? So then that leads me to think that they're donating organs to, like, older people, which means that they're not clones of... They're not only donating to their own clone. What I... So it's not stated explicitly in the movie. What I interpreted was the quote-unquote trash gets cloned when they are 30. So by the time... No, because Ruth sees her possible when she's 18 or 20, but the... and that woman's like 30 or 40. Well, that's their theory, right? Is that th- their theory that is, I think, clearly wrong. They're modeled like after important people when these important people are young. So when they're older, but you don't get the organs from your person. It's just... Like, when you get to a certain age, you start to get diseases. Sometimes your organs fail. So you pick from the crop. You find your best possible match. But they're modeled off people who are either not important or who are already dead because of their diseases or addictions. So what I interpreted as, it's like, say if there is an addict, he was cloned when whatever age, it doesn't matter. But then that that embryo grows up and then another important person buys their organs when they fail. I guess, again, it's, I'm like, this is spawning so many questions. I don't know if this is because I'm in the pharmaceutical industry, but then I'm like, well, but you know, addiction can be a genetic trait. And so like, how could they guarantee that Uh, the health of somebody's I just don't know. I mean, I, I, again, maybe I it's just because what, I'm I'm getting too technical. About no, this. what we're searching for is the we want answers to these technical questions because that's what we think is cool in stories. Mm. But again, the unsatisfying slash satisfying, if you think of it in an emotional sense, is Ishiguro is going more towards the value of life question as opposed yeah. to building the world. What you're talking about, though, answering these questions, you get into a slippery slope because there's the movie called The Island, which Michael Bay, uh, <laughs> rolling my eyes at just mentioning the name Michael Bay, he made a movie called The Island. Okay. And that is a movie about clones. It's the same kind of similar premise. It was made right after the book came out. It is that idea of successful people, whenever they have an ailment, going to their exact clone Mm -hmm. and getting the organ. But then the question comes of, okay, so if you're 30 and you buy a clone, how do you know, 
like how can you time it out so that clone is old yeah. enough because in the movie it stars Ewan McGregor and he's in this like utopian society but he realizes that he's just uh, you know a clone who's the real Ewan McGregor is out there getting ready for whenever he needs a body part from him but it's like okay so did they accelerate the clones right. aging yeah. process so it, well cuz also if let's say you know his regular or possible in this to use the language of this book got cancer then how like like let's say it was genetically encoded for him to have like the BRCA gene and then mm-hmm. like what the how would the clone not have the BRCA gene right like right. that's confusing oh and speaking of cancer they also say that this program cured cancer now that to me is an absolute ludicrous claim because cancer is not usually restricted to one organ right and you know if someone gets liver cancer the whole problem is getting like the margins of the cancer like you know Mm. what i mean and if it's if a cancer has metastasized you're not going to replace the entire lymphatic system with a clone yeah that i also personally had a problem with that claim in the book but that was just sort of like a one-off uh-huh claim yeah. but 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 they basically say that they've cured every single disease mm-hmm. so i'm just a little unclear about how that would work if there's a systemic disease like how right so i don't know maybe i'm just getting into the technicalities but i i agree i think these are things that we personally find interesting that he wasn't necessarily focusing on but for me it was distracting rather than making me think more deeply about what life means to these people because they're right. humans right? and and that's exactly the whole point of the novel it's like why are quote-unquote trash made into clones as opposed to important people well the general public doesn't view the clones as people so important people can't be cloned because you don't want to have an important clone because mm. people don't view that way. So society already views the trash as non-people. Mm. And I mm-hmm. think what Ishiguro is saying is that whether you're an important person, whether you're money, not, whether you're an addict, whether um, a sex worker, whatever, everyone is, is important. Mm-hmm. Everyone has value. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the broader point yeah. that he's going for. Yeah. Um, yeah, it also, the idea of just being able to run away was never... Well, that um, that is something I was thinking of, and that also, it's a little too left up to your interpretation. I will agree with you there. Well, right, because I think, actually, the movie right. does add a little bit of intrigue with their wristbands. And I thought that was actually really pertinent, because being able to scan in and out of a facility is very health-based. Like, that's super common in the healthcare industry to have, like, badges where, like, even if you're working for a pharmaceutical company, you don't necessarily have access to the lab, right? Mm-hmm. If you're working for, like, for, like when I was working for my regulatory job, I did not have key card access to the lab. I think that was really smart to have those little kids. And it was also really creepy. Yes. That they had to, like, every time they went outside, they would run by and, like, scan their wristband that was super cool and even carrie mulligan's character kathy had to do that when she left her apartment Mm -hmm. and i think that was a really great way of visualizing that even though kathy has been a carer for three to four times longer than any normal clone she does still have to be tracked because she's essentially a clone i thought that was a great visualization in the movie that was not included in the book however the fact that none of the couples or individuals talked about like what if we just ran away like that would be your number one question just take the fucking wristband off right Right. well that's a plot for another story well that's true but like the whole thing was that they were indistinguishable from real like a Mm quote-unquote possible or irregular because right they could go out in society and on like a day trip and no one would know, like one of their classes at Hailsham was the ability to interact with, you know, the general public. Mm-hmm. So they're they're setting these kids up to be able to interact with the public, but yet they're kept away. So why would they need those skills? 
they're so confined to the hospital. It's just that, see, again, it's just, it feels like there's a little bit of a possibility, like an open door, but then it's not explored. Then why wouldn't they just clip the wristband and walk away? I think that's what I was expecting while reading the story. That's it's. I'm not saying it's cliched or anything, but that's what would be the the juicy story. That if I were to come up with a clone, mm-hmm. st- I mean, that's what kind of happens in the island. Mm-hmm. It, like they, that whole story is about them running away. The haunting part of this story is that this is just a part of life. They question prolonging their time before they need to donate, but they never even once question the act of donating at all. Yeah. Which I think that's a larger point that I I honestly, I mean, I did have that thought a few times. And I I think Alex Garland, including the wristbands and Mm. the uh, signing in system, I mean, that's a perfect... Yeah nonverbal explanation of yeah. how they can't run away. Right. But I think the writing is strong enough where they are raised from birth so precisely that that thought never even comes into their head. Like, this is their purpose. Okay, so my, my rebuttal to that is that we see that programming when they're children, and they've been told all these horror stories, right? When mm-hmm. when you leave the confines of Hailsham, you can get killed or there there can be an accident or madam won't let you back in and you'll starve to death in the woods mm-hmm. right but they get direct evidence that that's not true because mm-hmm. then they're also at the same time that they're being told these lies they're going to classes about how to interact with the outside world and then when they're 18 they live at the cottages and then they're able to go on day trips mm-hmm. so don't you think that maybe a missing scene is having someone introduce that idea and then have them be like, we would never think of that. Like that, that had never occurred to me. But I, I just don't understand like setting up that oppression, but then giving them the freedom, but then they never have the idea to run away because they have th- that direct evidence shows them that that's not, they're not going to die when they leave the confines of this program. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm just left scratching my head about, how I'm supposed to get the, how the programming, if they had kept them from society the entire time, maybe. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. Yeah, it's a good question. I have another sure, inconsistent, sure. I have another thing to <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Another, another little thing that's been niggling at me. So Kathy and Tommy are set up to be, you know, pure love, Right. Maybe you got a completely different impression from the book. But my impression when Tommy shows Kathy his artwork, she thinks it's super ugly and doesn't get it. Right? And she never tells him, right? Well, she thinks certain pieces are... Yeah, she Uh doesn't fully hate it, but doesn't love it either. Yes, yeah. So it was... Okay, so that was confusing to me because if the idea was that the art was supposed to expose their souls... Kathy would have loved the art, no matter what it was. And to my point, in the movie, Kathy really, really, really likes Tommy's artwork. Uh Uh-huh. Now, why in the book... Is is her not liking his artwork in the book supposed to be an example of how, like, you don't have to love everything about someone to still be in love with them? My interpretation was that Kathy did not love the art, but the fact that Tommy was putting himself on the line so vulnerably, putting so much effort into the artwork under the impression that it will prolong their relationship and their lives, the act is what she loves. Mm -hmm. She realizes, well, she's always loved Tommy, but what she continues to value about him is that he did it despite it not being mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ruth, where that relationship was based on lust and based on her desire to keep Kathy and Tommy apart, that wasn't real love. And she would outright say to Tommy that the artwork's shit and would mm-hmm. tease him about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's not real love. Whereas Kathy loving Tommy for the act of it is that proves that they have true love 
proves, in my opinion, that they have souls. Um, so her act of not telling Tommy that she doesn't like it means that she recognizes that Tommy is doing it because he loves her so much. So we're not supposed to tell our lovers the truth? No, I I, just, I mean, she just doesn't want to hurt his feelings. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think that has anything to do with the broader message. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the artwork could have been good. To, it well, doesn't I think, matter. Like, I, I mean, this is another kind of side note. But I think that the artwork that they did for the movie was really great. Right. And it I was, think it was a real stylized uh style <laughs> yeah it's not very i think it's a good it, it would have been funny and silly in the movie for tommy to be like i made all these for you and then it's just like shitty drawings i think that would have been unintentionally hilarious funny. yeah so i like the change that they made there uh we've gotten this far into the pod we should talk about the actual cast so Kathy's played by the wonderful Carrie Mulligan. This yeah. is one of her earlier roles. She killed it last year in Promising Young Woman. Yeah. She was nominated for Slayed Best Actress. That. Uh, but this proves that even at the beginning of her career, she was great. I mean, she truly is in another level. One After we turned this off, Danny reminded me that she's in Pride and Prejudice. With Keira Knightley. I didn't even think about that because she has brown hair in that movie and looks so young. Because that came out in 2005. This came out in 2010. But then when Danny said that, I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, she's she's been in a lot that I love. Yeah, she is like one line in Pardon Prejudice. Uh, but, yeah, she's great actress. Uh, Ruth, played by Kira Knightley. This is the only project I can think of where she played not a villain, but she's not a nice character. Yeah. She's usually the, the heart of gold, sweet innocence character yeah yeah and and to be honest she's not my favorite actor but i think that she was really good in this yeah i'm just not used to seeing her be vitriolic and viperous she's um, i think she's one of the most interesting characters in this whole thing yeah yeah definitely um she's really complex and even though she is a villain she is a complex villain. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a huge fan of those oh, because who she's, isn't? yeah, like she knows by the time she's 18 that she's going to be donating her vital organs. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's going to make someone angry. Mm -hmm. But not only that, she comes so far in her life. And I think this is the biggest thing that I get out of the movie and book, even though it wasn't my favorite vehicle. She apologizes. And how many times do we see a villain apologize and take responsibility right. for their poor actions? And she's still a very young person when she does that. That's that is huge. Yes. That's so that's such a massive change for her character. Agreed. I loved that. But what I'm getting at so I think I actually got the most out of her character and Kira Knightley's performance. Because what I liked most about this was the idea that because these clones or these donors have such a short lifespan, what's really the most important thing to do for them is to figure out who you are very early in life. And that's not, that's not an appropriate expectation for adults to put on those children right. because they're the ones who are shortening their lives. Right? But that's the reality. That's the reality. Yeah. And so that change for her, because she knows she's the weakest out of these three friends, is such a huge, like, that's just a momentous real, like, realization for her. Yeah. And I think, like, that, again, like, Ishiguro's overall message is that we never know when the end is going to come for us right and so the ability to confront your flaws as soon as possible and be you know mature and take responsibility for your actions you you have to do it as soon as possible right and you have to come into yourself and whether that's through art or sports or studies or whatever your strengths are i think his message is that you have to be true to yourself as and that comes with an asterisk as long as it's not hurting anyone else right yeah <laughs> because our lives this regular human lives are so short and we get to live you know the average life expectancy is 70 to 80 right and even that is 
very fleeting. It's not guaranteed. And right, especially exactly. with something like we're living through a pandemic that now people are yeah. uh, yes. reminded. Yeah. Um so for yeah. these for the clones, they only get to live half the the common lifespan and they're they're coming to terms with who they are. So Ishiguro and Garland are saying like if they can do it, right. regular humans you have no excuse that <laughs> definitely should do it. You yeah. should value life because that's a that's a larger question that humans have been dealing with since the beginning of time. What's the point? What's the point of life if we're all going to die? And it's kind of that corny message of it's not the destination it's about the journey it's about how you live your life it's about the connections you make oh that's another part of art i think the big reason why the story ishiguro pushes so hard with art is because it forms connections with people movies do that Mm -hmm. of course Mm -hmm. but so do pieces of art pieces of music art is a connector and and that's what the song which is what this story is named after yes is about which is never let me go exactly which i did not know was made up until i read a little bit about the book oh it's not a real song oh i didn't know that it was written for the movie and the cassette tape cover was completely created for the movie that's cool did not exist before this movie which i thought was it was so convincing because when i went on to youtube I saw the cover, and I think the song is sung by a fictional Julie Bridgewater. Yeah. And when it popped up on YouTube as that cover, I started reading some of the comments, and I was like, holy shit, like, this didn't exist. It's yeah. really, really well done That's for that cool. time, you know, the ni- you know 1964 kind of smoky barroom vibe that they were going for. Really well right. done. And actually, speaking of music, Rachel Portman is a great composer. Um, she composed this yeah. score. The, the score is pretty constant throughout yeah. the whole movie and a little overbearing at times, but I like that. I, I like that about I scores. I thought it was all right. Everyone says, oh, the best scores are the scores that are unnoticeable, that you forget about. And I say BS to that. Some of my favorite scores are the most boisterous, in-your-face, noticeable thing. Like Nicholas Bertel, you always... Listen mm-hmm. to the music along with that. Hans Zimmer, too. I mean, his music in Dune and in Interstellar and in Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. it is blaring. It, like Inception, uh, it's very much a character in itself. Uh, we are talking about, speaking of characters, so we talked about Kathy, talked about Ruth, played by Kira Knightley. Then there is... Uh, Tommy! Tommy. Little old feisty Tommy, played and- by a young... Andy Garfield, this is a year before he broke out with The Social Network. Mm I had seen him for the first time in The Social Network. I didn't see this movie when it came out. So, yeah, it's cool to see just a younger actor, too, just like Kerry Mulligan, who right before he's in the... They're in the prime of their career, just absolutely explode. Well, and you know what? I think he does an all right job with this. The one scene that I think is really effective is when he's coming home with the realization that there's no deferral for his donations and he's basically going to be going into his fourth third or fourth donation knowing this now and he gets out of the car and tommy's character has been set up to have anger issues which i think is i think that's another effective thing like maybe you know deep down tommy always knew that he had an expiration date basically and so he gets out of the car and just starts like screaming and crying and that raw emotion is really impactful yeah i think that's a really intense scene and carrie mulligan gets out of the car and as in her capacity as a carer i think she knows exactly what to do and i think that dynamic is really well visualized in the movie did you like that scene it's really intense oh yeah Certainly. The scream he really sounds like he's screaming from his very being, his core. Yeah. Yeah. Loved loved the performances. Charlotte Rampling from oh, Dune. Yeah. Uh, of Dune. She's the uh, Miss Emily. She's great as well. Sally Hawkins plays Miss Lucy. I know you didn't like her performance. Uh, yeah, I really did not she was like way overacting in this. I did not huh. I, I could barely watch it. It made me feel like Yikes. Huh. Be careful how you talk about Oscar-nominated Sally Hawkins. <laughs> okay, I'm just joking. I just didn't. Um, she's great in The Shape of Water. All right, and I know there is one thing, more thing you wanted to talk about. You wanted to talk about the cassette, the difference in the movie. 
in the book. Yeah. Let's, so that was. Let's bring that up and then get sad. out of here. Um, yeah. Other than the fact that I thought the costumes were anachronistic. I was supposed to take place in the 80s and 90s and they were wearing like 1890s like scarves and hats. I don't know. That was yeah. weird to me. But anyway, so one of the most effective parts of the book is that when they're kids, they're studying the geography of England and Norfolk is presented to them in this kind of realm of impossibility and legends sort of spring up around this area of England and what it comes to symbolize to them is it's the place where all lost things are found. And so with that in mind, Kathy's most prized possession is that cassette tape that she found at a sale that has the song Never Let Me Go. And she becomes very emotionally connected to that song. And at some point she loses that cassette. Now, when that happened, in the book, I thought that Ruth had stolen it because I thought that that would be a fi- like the perfect example of how far Ruth is willing to go to emotionally oppress the people around her. Kind of like Power of the Dog. Yeah. I think Ruth is really similar to Benedict Cumberbatch's character because she's so toxic. And I thought that that was just another way that she was exerting her power over Kathy. Now, the touching part about that in the book, again, is that they go to Norfolk for a day trip, and Tommy remembers that Kathy had lost this cassette tape 10 years ago. And he kind of brings up with her, like, hey, let's just let's just look for it. Let's just see if we could find it in some secondhand shops. And they end up finding the cassette, and that's such a beautiful way of saying, like, you know, they have always been emotionally connected and you know and beautiful things are possible when they get together and you know this kind of this symbolism of that and that is completely taken out of the movie except for the fact that Tommy finds the cassette for Kathy at the sale and gives it to her yeah when they're kids when they're kids I don't know what you know it could have been cut for time yeah that's what I think I think that's you know but on the other end of that, this is a very short movie. It's 107 minutes. I don't know if they could have done something to include that. But my point is, in the book, basically, it, it just has gone missing. Ruth has not stolen the cassette. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that would have been a really effective way of building Ruth's character and going even more to demonstrate what she's gone through and sort of come to terms with with her short life. And if they had kept that scene and made Ruth take it in the movie, that would have been a big deal for me. Um, and they didn't do that. And I kind of missed it. I think it kind of took a little bit away from me because that oh, that scene just like stayed with me yeah. in the book. I agree that it's better in the book. I think what they're going for in the movie was A, for time, cutting time, and B, sowing the seeds of Tommy was always in love with Kathy and and vice versa and just the fact that Ruth was there started this love triangle and Mm -hmm. once Ruth is out of the picture and admits that Tommy and Kathy should have been together all along the fact that Kathy has been listening to Tommy's tape confirms that yeah it's it's just a change that I think it wasn't as handled uh, as as well as it could have been and probably shouldn't have been changed at all I, I agree yeah well, I mentioned the director at the top, but Mark Romanek. He's only directed a handful of films. He directed One Hour Photo with Robin Williams uh, back in 2002. Haven't seen it. A super effective thriller. Robin Williams, it's one of the few roles where he's playing against type. It's not a comedy. It's it's a horror thriller. So, yeah, I can only think of a handful that that Goodwill Hunting, also Insomnia where Robin Williams is playing a a dude, not a comedian. So R.A.P. to Robin Williams, one of yeah. the one of the best. Mark Romanek also directed the music videos for Ninety Nine Problems, a great Ooh. music video. But my favorite one, this is what he's most well known for, the music video for Closer, Nine Inch Nails is Closer. Oh. One of the most important songs of the '90s. One of the craziest, influential music videos 
um, of all time. I definitely recommend you looking up the music video to Closer. I guess if I'll you've, have to. If you've seen it, you know it already. It's explicit. It's freaky. Uh, the stuff of nightmares. But I love it. I love Nine Inch Nails. Uh, they're Trent Reznor and now Atticus Ross, who has joined the band. Incredible artists who've contributed so much to music, but also the film score. Oh, yeah. He continues to direct. He directed a part of Lemonade, Beyonce's musical um, film. That's pretty cool. uh, Based off her album, of course. Yeah, so he's... I think he should direct more films. I love his music videos, but he should... You know, direct more. I want to see more. He's a very eclectic artist. The cinematography in this was beautiful. Yeah. There's, you know, another thing I think they probably tried to sub for that cassette, that missing cassette, is the boat. And I think that was a really good symbol of how they were going nowhere in a yep. vessel that should be able to do whatever it wants. You know, I didn't even think about that. That's perfect metaphor. Yeah. And I, the cinematography around that was absolutely gorgeous there were a couple sunset scenes around that the the final tag i would say because i forgot to mention this uh when we were talking about carrie mulligan i thought all of the children were really good actors but izzy michael wow dead ringer for dead ringer for carrie mulligan at age i don't know eight seven or eight the bangs the way she looked over her shoulder the way that she moved the way that she talked holy shit she blew me away it was it was uncanny and eerie how much she looked like carrie mulligan yeah agreed. i don't know who cast this but shout out to whoever found izzy michael i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly but good for her well that is the end of our episode thank you for listening We'll be back in two to three weeks. We have some events to attend to, a wedding. We also need to watch the series uh, The Underground Railroad, directed by Barry Jenkins. We're covering that in two to three weeks. So in the meantime, please check us out on our Instagram. Feel free to message us with, with your favorite Tarantino film, and please explain why uh, we're going to discuss that on next next episode. Exciting. Any other things you want to say? I don't think so. Cool. Thanks for the suggestion, Allison. <laughs> yes. Uh, you the best. Uh, you the real one. You the real MVP. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we'll see you on the next one.